Good to have you with us at Blue Valley Antioch this morning. We appreciate JT, one of our elders, leading in worship today. Pastor John is on vacation. Since he's doing two jobs, we figured we could do that for him. And uh, he'll be on vacation, I believe, next week too. JT, is that right? No, he'll be back. Okay, well, good. All right, so he'll be back. I'm glad we've got people around me to tell me what is going on. And to our guest... Uh, I want to say to you today that uh, I know you probably were a little concerned when you walked in and saw a guy uh, wearing uh, psychedelic roosters on his shirt, and uh, I just want to assure you that normally it's much, much worse. So uh, ask these people. They'll be able to uh, let you know. This is going to blow some of your minds, I think, uh, but I was thinking about this recently. We are now, we are now almost a quarter of the way through the 21st century. Think about it. There are young adults who are worshiping uh, at Blue Valley today who have spent the entirety of their lives living in the 21st century. Even young adults older than that have their first conscious memory being an event in the 21st century. So it's amazing, amazing how fast time goes. And I've found that as you get older, you kind of lose track of the passage of time. And sometimes you just need a little help to recognize exactly how much time has passed. And so I want to go through a little exercise this morning to help those of us who maybe can't quite get our minds around how long it's been since the turn of the century. In 2000, the average price of a dozen eggs was 96 cents. A loaf of bread was a buck 50, and a week's worth of groceries cost $99.19. The average price of a new car in 2000 was just a tick under $22,000, and the average price of a home in Johnson County in 2000 was, wait for it, $150,000. All in all, prices today have increased 68.1% since 2000, meaning that you have to make $168,000 a year to have the same purchasing power you had in making $100,000 a year in 2000. That's the cost of living in this century. I'll not go further back so as not to depress further anyone who is here today. But, but here is the deal. The cost of living has always been high. I remember my parents talking when I was a boy about how much they had to spend on groceries when they got married. And I remember it clearly. They had to spend for a week's worth of groceries $13. That was when I was a boy, and, and we thought, man, things have gotten much more expensive. I mean, prices have always increased. That's just the way it is. If you want to live, then you just need to understand that the cost of living is always going to go up. Now, I promise you there's a connection. Turn to the book of Leviticus in your copy of God's Word. It's the third book of the Bible. You'll find it in the Old Testament. We're starting a very brief five-week survey of Leviticus, an Old Testament book that, frankly, most of us know very little about. But Leviticus is actually the first book studied by an Orthodox Jewish child. It's that important. And it was a matter of literal life or death 
for the Jewish people at the time of its writing, which is easy to see when you understand that it is actually a continuation of the, the narrative that closes at the end of the book of Exodus when the glory of God settles on the tabernacle. Now, now remember, back to when the Ten Commandments were given. God had appeared on Mount Sinai and spoken the ten to Moses in the hearing of the people. And the whole thing, the lightning and the thunder and the trumpets blowing, had so terrified the people that they came to Moses and said, we never want to do that again. So you go talk to him for us and tell us what he said. This terrifies us. But now, at the end of Exodus, now that same God who had terrified them from a distance had bought a house next door. He had chosen to erect his home in the precise middle of their camp. And so the unasked but obvious question at the end of Exodus is this, how are we supposed to live if God is our next-door neighbor. And beginning in the very first verse of Leviticus, God calls Moses from the tent and provides the instructions, the answer to that question. And the first seven chapters lay out what the Jews already suspected, that being God's next-door neighbor means a high cost of living. And the terms are summarized in the conclusion of the first section of Leviticus in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7, which say this. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Those offerings, obviously, obviously, very mysterious to us, are the cost of living index when it comes to having God as your next-door neighbor. They tell us that sacrifice is required for sinful people to maintain a relationship with a holy God. So let's take a few minutes to do our best to remove some of the mystery of these sacrifices by putting some easy handles on them. And the easiest of the handles to put on to them for you note takers out there is this. Leviticus 1, 1 through 6, 7 provides the instructions for the Jewish people in bringing the offerings and for which occasion they are to bring them. And Leviticus 6, 8 through 7, 38 provides instructions for the priest in receiving those offerings. In other words, the first section tells the Jewish people what to bring and when to bring it. And the second section tells the Jewish priest what to do when those things are brought to them. And that's simple enough. But I want to spend the next five to seven minutes, and I promise you it won't be longer than that, okay? For those of you who are thinking, I'm in Leviticus, please get me out of here, all right? I'm going to spend the next five to seven minutes summarizing these offerings for you, starting with the burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering is listed first because it was the most frequent of the sacrifices that were offered. Its primary purpose 
was to signify a commitment of total dedication to the Lord. Its name in Moses' language meant that which goes up because it was the one offering which went up entirely in smoke except for the the hide of livestock or sheep and the craw of a bird. Portions of all the other sacrifices were reserved in, in sharing, actually, a meal. So why was this offering given entirely to the Lord? Because it was meant to symbolize a total dedication of the one who was offering the sacrifice. And and there's something interesting to note here that will be repeated in some of the sacrifices, which actually carries over into a, a more familiar passage of Scripture to you. What was offered by the offerer was dependent upon the financial condition of the one making the offering. Those who were better off would uh, offer the choice of their herds. Those less well-off would offer the choice from their flocks or sheep of goats. And the impoverished, the impoverished could offer a turtle dove or a pigeon, which, by the way, was the burnt offering that Mary and Joseph brought to the temple when Jesus was eight days old and demonstrates the poverty into which our Savior was born. In these three levels of offerings, we see God's heart for a relationship that isn't based on class, but is instead possible for everyone. He makes provisions for everyone to come to Him. That's pretty cool. The next offering covered is the grain offering in Leviticus 2. And this offering in particular would be the most akin to the offerings that we take today because it would have been something like a free will expression of trust in the Lord's ability to provide needs. They were always given in conjunction with the burnt offering. So in other words, there's this total dedication offering that goes up, and then it's followed by this offering. So, So if the burnt offering symbolized complete dedication, to the Lord, the grain offering was a tangible expression of that dedication in that it was an offering of a portion of what the worshiper would otherwise be able to use for themselves, giving it back to the Lord. Another important aspect of the grain offering was that the priests um, offering it would, would keep a portion of it for themselves. So this offering also served the purpose of supplying the needs of the priests who were working in the temple. Now the next offering, the peace offering, was something like a free will offering given in celebration of a blessing or completing a vow as something of a meal with God. A portion of the offering was given as a burnt offering back to God. That would have been his portion of the meal. And the rest was eaten by the person offering the sacrifice and the priest would join in. So it was meant to picture a meal with God. And the final two offerings are the sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering is probably what most of us tend to think about when we think about offerings in the Old Testament. This was a sacrifice that was given to atone for sin committed by the one making the offering. It would be offered when someone sinned unintentionally against the Lord's command, which is best understood as a sin that was committed undefiantly. And you're saying, well, I mean, what's the difference 
between a defiant sin and a non-defiant sin. Well, a non-defiant sin might be intentional, but was born in the moment. So, for instance, let's use a pretty graphic kind of sin to help highlight the difference. This sacrifice could be offered for the sin of manslaughter, intentionally killing another in the heat of the moment, but there was no offering to atone for premeditated murder. So when King David committed murder in killing Bathsheba's husband and committed adultery with her, there was no offering to atone for that. He had to throw himself on the mercy of God. So that's the sin offering, which brings us then to the guilt offering. This was an offering to atone for sin and make restitution for the damage or the loss caused by sin of something either due God or man, plus 20% as a fine uh, to cover that, uh, that, that damage monetarily. An example of a loss God would incur would be a failure to give him a required offering, and an example of a loss that someone else could occur because of our sin might be something that we would obtain from them by deception. So let's say that we stole. Well, there would be a, an offering that we would have to make to God to atone for our guilt. That would be follow or sin. That would be followed by a guilt offering. But then w there would be a restitution demonstrating true repentance to the one from whom it was stole plus 20%. So you're done, okay? That's a quick overview of the offerings that are prescribed in Leviticus 1 through 7. And again, I'm going to stop there because uh, there are eyes starting to roll back in your head. But, but there are some handles, I think, in this section that are, that are helpful that I think are important for you to remember. Remember, there are two main sections in Leviticus 1 through 7, one that tells the one giving the offering what they must do in giving it and when to give it, and one that tells the priest what they are to do in receiving it. There are essentially five individual offerings that fall into three categories. There are dedicatory offerings, the burnt offering and the grain offering. Dedicatory offerings are the burnt offering and the grain offering. Communal offerings, remember the one that symbolizes the meal with God, is the peace offering. And then there are atoning offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. So, in Leviticus 1-7, through God gave Moses instructions for how sinful people could maintain a relationship with the holy God, to which the vast majority of Christians are going to reply, great. And your point, I mean, beside equipping me to be able to be killer at a game of Bible trivia, why do I need to know? any of this. Why Leviticus? That's the title of this five-week series. Why Leviticus? And here's the answer. Because of what it points to. That's the answer all the way through Leviticus, but in particular in Leviticus 1 through 7. How many of you remember seeing the signs on I-70 going toward Denver, beckoning you to see the world's largest prairie dog. And 
also a menagerie of other critters like a two-headed rooster and a five-legged cow. How many people here remember that? Uh, some of us do. I was a sucker for it. I really was. I took my family for the most chaotic and hysterical 30 minutes of our lives and bought a T-shirt in 2000 uh, by stopping there. I'm telling you, it's hysterical. Um, but those signs all pointed to and promised something bigger and better than the unassuming landscape of western Kansas. The goal wasn't to see the sign, although I'm guessing that's what almost everyone in here just did. They, they weren't beckoned in like my family was, and I'm still atoning for that, by the way. The goal wasn't to just see the sign. The goal was to follow where the sign led. And that's what Leviticus does in general and what our passage today does specifically. It points us to something beyond the words on the page to truths that are quite honestly the compass points for ultimate reality, truths without which we would have no hope beyond this life. What are they? Here's the first. The sacrifices point to man's sin. Assumed in the sacrifices are mankind's failure to transcend our programming as sinners. I won't belabor this point because we've highlighted it recently in our journey through Exodus because it was required, and we've re revisited it over and over again in last year's series through Romans. But I do want to linger a bit this morning over the offense of sin. The spirit of the age is one of sinlessness, really. Other sin, I mean, we easily accept the sinfulness of others. We accept that those who disagree with us ideologically or who engage in behaviors that we deem to be taboo are sinners, but we are allergic generally to any notion that we sin in a spiritual sense, that the things that we believe are sometimes evil and the behaviors in which we engage are sometimes wicked. We affirm that our ideological opponent or someone practicing a sin that we deem abhorrent is worthy of judgment, but we, we just make a few well-intentioned mistakes from time to time. We have a few things that we're just working on by the grace of God. And to be told that we have wicked hearts, that the best Morality that we have to offer is putrid in the nostrils of God, which is the least graphic way that I can describe what Isaiah 64, 6 says. To think that is offensive. But the mere fact that the sacrifices existed for all strata of Jewish persons in Moses' day demonstrates that we have indeed all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The sacrifices point to the ultimate reality that mankind is a sinner. That's bad news, but here's some good news. The sacrifices point to God's grace. Let's go back to where I started this morning, to the stark, cotton-mouthed terror that the Jews must have felt 
when God moved in next door at the end of Exodus, in Exodus 40. I want you to keep that in mind, and I want you to listen how Leviticus, essentially the very next verse in the narrative, begins. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meaning, which he just moved into, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. And then the instructions begin. Who called whom? Did the people cry out to God in terror and say, Tell us, God, we beg of you, what must we do to survive your presence? Tell us, God, we implore you to show us how sinful people can survive in your presence. Is that how it goes? No. No, the Lord calls to Moses. The reason that the people of Israel knew what was required of them by way of sacrifice was because God himself made it known. It's very easy to look at the specifics of the sacrifices and the rules that accompany them and view God as being harsh and demanding and distant. But when you realize what those sacrifices and rules and rituals accomplish, and understand that God was under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to provide them, then you realize the inexhaustible capacity of mankind to offend God's holiness, and therefore, for God to remain silent was the sin of death. When you realize that, you realize that the provision of the sacrifices was an act of God's grace and is a constant testament to the desire of God to have a relationship with us as much as they are a testament to the offense of sin. The sacrifices point to the, the, the ultimate truth that mankind is a sinner. And the sacrifices point to the ultimate truth that God is a God of grace. But most of all, the sacrifices point to Jesus' sacrifice. I want you to think back through the offerings with me. The burnt offering and the grain offering symbolized complete dedication to God. This points to Christ's willing sacrifice in complete dedication to the will of God. If it is your will, let this cup pass from me, but not your will, but mine. The peace offering pictures the peace with God that we enjoy on the basis of, of Christ's death on the cross. The sin offering points to the perfect nature of Christ's death for sin, bringing to an end once and for all the sacrifices whose purposes was to picture Christ's own ultimate sacrifice. And the guilt offering pictures the reconciliation with God and man that Christ's death on the cross accomplished. You're saying, wow, Derek, that's really, that's insightful to make those connections. I don't make those connections. The Bible makes those connections. The New Testament is full of its writers making those connections. I'm not making the news. I'm reporting it. The Bible makes those connections. And so the sacrifices in Leviticus point 
to our need for Jesus. And that's what today has been all about. So where do we go from here? What do we do with this? Well, for those who have experienced the benefit of Christ's sacrifice for sin by surrendering their lives to Jesus as Savior, our charge is to read the first seven chapters of Leviticus with gratitude, to be thankful as the author of Hebrews was, that we no longer have to engage in the blood of bulls and goats to atone for the sin that we all carry because they ultimately, again, the author of Hebrews making this connection, ultimately the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus took it away perfectly. So perfectly that at the moment of my salvation, I've said this before, but it's important to remember, at the moment of my salvation, I wasn't just forgiven of the sins up to that point. It wasn't that the blood of Jesus was able to cover everything in my life only up until the 26th of March, 1978. At the moment of that salvation, not only had the sins that I had committed to that point Point been atoned for, the sins I would commit had been atoned for. And if the Lord gives me another 30 years, 40 years of living, the sins up until the moment of my death have been atoned for, my sin has been provided for perfectly in the blood of Jesus. And so I let Leviticus 1 through 7, as a follower of Jesus, point my mind to the cross of Calvary and its all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. But there are undoubtedly those here today whose lives have yet to experience the freedom and peace with God that Christ's sacrifice brings. Even if you've been coming to a church for a long time, there is kind of a default reaction in humankind to say, I've got to do something in order to add my peace to what Jesus did so that I might be saved. And you lay awake at night with the lingering thought that you might not have done enough. Why do you have that thought? Because you haven't. You haven't. There is nothing that any one of us can offer Jesus in exchange for salvation or offer Jesus to be the secret ingredient that makes salvation possible through his blood. The reason that you lack peace is because you are holding out some part of your heart, thinking that you have what is needed to put it over the top. And before today, passages like ours just underscored those feelings. You think, well, there's these things I've got to do, but I've got to keep doing them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But perhaps today you're catching a glimpse of a God on the pages of Scripture that has always been there, but you have missed. 
You've seen a God who is fearsome and unbending in His holiness. Yes, that's true. But you've also seen a God who calls out to you from the tent of meeting and into a relationship with Him that you've never before dreamed possible. A church isn't a church unless it's doing two things, making converts and discipling them. We're here today ultimately to accomplish that purpose. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we call you to the God who calls to us to surrender your life to Him. Join me in prayer.